This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. By the Book on BFM 89.9. Hello, everybody, and welcome to By the Book. I am Lee Chui Lin, and joining me, as always, is my fellow enjoyer of fantasy fiction, Shamila Ganesan. Hello. And today, we're very excited to have a guest with us in the studio. It's somebody that we've spoken to a number of times before, actually, but never about books. Um, we've got Andrew Pereira, who's the CEO of General Assembly Inn, who also recommended this month's book club. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. A pleasure as always. So, um, this book is The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison. It is the beginning of the Broken Earth trilogy. Um, I will say up front that I blazed through this. I'm now at book three, so I'm going to try my best to keep the three books separate. Um, but before we get into it, why did you want to talk about this book? Uh, it's interesting. I, I was uh, listening to a podcast and uh, she was a guest on the podcast and uh, I never actually heard of N.K. Jameson before, but she sounded fascinating. And uh, the books that she was talking about sounded fascinating. And here we are. I also blazed through uh, uh, the book and uh, am just finished just finished the second book. So I'm really enjoying the series. I'm feeling a little left out. I finished book <laughs> one. Um, I finished it just in time for this show. So I, I yet to start book two. I will catch up. Um, but... I'm really glad you recommended this book, um, Andrew, because I've heard of N.K. Jemison for years. Um, you know, she's she appears in every list of best um, sci-fi slash fantasy authors in the last decade or two decades. I've always wanted to read, but I've also been slightly wary of starting like a trilogy or a series, um, especially with time and all that. And and it, it did feel initially like the story might be quite dense, um, but it's not. It's such a great... It's such a good example of using the fantasy genre, but to also draw on more current tropes and perhaps issues. And when we talk about representation and diversity and all those buzzwords, this does it in such an organic and, and brilliant way. So I think maybe it's worth saying what the story is, right? Such as it is. So it takes place in a land called the Stillness. Um, and that's crucial because it's a land that actually isn't still at all. Um, it is deeply sensitive to uh, it's deeply sensitive to changes in heat and temperature. You get earthquakes, you get volcanoes. When those things happen, they get what they call the fifth season. In other words, something that changes um, that changes the landscape in such a dramatic way, that changes communities that forces them to live in different ways. And it takes place at the beginning when essentially the world ends. And this is more or less the first sentence, I want to say yes, something like. It starts so, when the world has ended. Yeah, so yeah. I'm not spoiling it. It's somebody saying up front, you need to know that this is how the world ends. So it begins there, but from but from there, the story kind of branches out into three separate characters, uh, female characters all going through trials of their own, um, but all closely tied in many ways to the, the larger story of the land and the communities. I love the world building in this book. Oh, yeah. um, the What you just described, Lynn, is is the, the frame of the book, but really the, the beauty of, of the fifth season is in how these different concepts, because obviously, given that it is a, a fantasy book, there is um, stuff to do with uh, different communities of people, different cultures, and um, the notion of how to 
build a world is done so well in this book. Um, when she talks about how um, things that we are familiar with, like racism or slavery or classism, it manifests in this particular society where it's so familiar and yet there's so much uh, that for us to kind of familiarize ourselves with when it comes to how this might manifest. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that part of the book as well because it is it is fantasy. It's you know and and sci-fi ish in a way as well. But at the same time, it's instantly recognizable um, uh, as you know the, the analogies to our world are, are instantly recognizable. And it's so interesting how you know you can change the entire world, as it were, in the book. And, you know, things like racism, things like classism, uh, you know, responses to climate change, mm. all of these things can factor into the book in the same way and in ways that we recognize uh, in very different circumstances. Also, I think in very disturbing ways, frankly, mm. because it... Um the the world that the book is set in is very harsh, and I found that very interesting. So it doesn't have the um, you're you're kind of diving straight into this very new th thing that also feels oddly familiar, but familiar in ways that you don't necessarily want it to feel familiar in, um, because there isn't necessarily anything to hook onto at the beginning, right? The words are different, the ways names, even people's names, and the fact that they have cast names, use names, uh, the fact that it reflects the community they come from, their skill set, how that shifts and changes, all of that feels unfamiliar and that takes a while. Uh, but then I found it uncomfortable because it really talks about how people treat each other when there's difference, uh, when there is difficulty, um, and when you have people that you're scared of, frankly. Yes, um, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that in the in the midst of um, this very, I suppose this massively shifting, literally shifting landscape, um, a world where earthquakes are the norm, and and the reason it's such a big part of the story is that you have people who have the ability to sort of exert their will over these massive natural forces. So there is this notion of what happens when we live in a world where there are people who, through no fault of their own, have these outsized powers. How do we treat them? Um, so there's also this issue of how we... Um, what resources might mean and how we then exploit the people who are our means to those resources. I thought how the book eventually gets to that point is really quite sad. And even the, the gender roles and the dynamics in the book, um, it is a very difficult and harsh reflection of how our world today is and sadly how it's probably going to be for a while. Absolutely. I think the, the, the gender roles in particular I found to be quite, quite interesting. And, um, you know, how, how motherhood, you know, is mm. viewed in this world how, um, you know, how it, it affects things like your use cost, right? So what jobs you end up doing. So not entirely different to the world that we live <laughs> I mean, in. People are literally called breeders. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, so it is, it is disturbing in that sense, right? I think the other thing which I found quite interesting is that, um, as was alluded to, it, it, it is a world that's, uh, uh, you know, cataclysms are happening and there's a lot of uh, seismic activity that's resulting in climate change, Right. And as a result of this happening, and it's happening quite frequently, and it's quite catastrophic, um, society has basically organized 
itself. Yes, they're in always response. on the edge of edge of um, panic or response to so trauma. It's interesting because I didn't think that they were panicking. That's the that's the weird part. Uh, no, not panic. Yeah. Um, mm. I meant more like trauma actually, and they're so used to it that they have a contingency plan to deal with it. Well, yeah, and and there's also almost there are there are uh, you know responses to this this climate change, this seismic activity that are almost religious in nature. Mm. Um, the way society is structured is actually based around responding to and surviving these cataclysms. Um, and that harshness in the world around you is translates to harshness in uh, relationships that people have with one another and uh, what how society behaves. So it was very interesting to see how society, you know, in this book, Responds to uh, uh, responds to this very harsh environment that they find themselves in. Yeah, I found that super interesting because it's uh, part of N.K. Jemison's world building. Right, you mm. really get that sense early on when they talk about. When they talk, for example, about how dead civs, dead civilizations, as they call them, how they handled it and how they failed and how we need to learn from their failings, even if what that learnings, what those learnings are, are harsh and maybe unpalatable to other, to societies like ours, which have not experienced these sorts of changes. I think that the the ways in which that, the ways in which those issues were expressed were so fascinating Partly because I wondered whether I would survive oh. in this setting. I don't think I would. <laughs> um, no, I, I constantly thought to myself that this is a world that I don't think I want to live in. Nobody seems to be living um, with joy or care, right? No, because, because you fill a role, right? Yes, everybody yeah. has a role. Most people have power taken away from them by force. Uh, but I do think also, as part of the world building, what I really loved is, um, so N.K. Jemison is African-American and so she draws so heavily on African culture, various parts of African culture, to write this fantasy world. So the characters are almost all... Um, people of African origin. I mean, they're not described as such, but clearly from the way their physicality is described, the words that they might use. Um, I love the way she describes food. I love the way she describes how people are dressed because you recognize references, but they're also not direct references, right? So she's making up a world that's heavily inspired by African cultures. And that in itself felt so unique and different to read. Oh, it's fascinating. And and I think even if you, you know, if you take out all the, the social components of it and the cultural components of it as well, I think there's a very human story or mm. human set of stories that lies at the heart of this, um, which is very interesting. So, you know, those three characters uh, uh, that the book follows, um, you know, those the, the voices are very different from one another. Um, their outlooks on the same things very different from one another. But you end up empathizing with every single one of them and feeling for them uh, as they go through all these experiences. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's just great storytelling. World aside, right? Just that the storytelling of those three characters is fascinating. I Before, we have to take a break, but before that, I wanted to talk about the notion of power. Because when you were discussing the, the three characters and their outlooks, I thought that's really true, partly because um, they are... They're all coming from a disempowered position, trying to achieve something in the midst of that, but also struggling with the different ways in which each of them perceive power and how they're going to get it. And um, I thought that that was a really big thing in the book, again, perhaps because of the roles that are so firmly prescribed uh, within the society in which the fifth season is set. You really have that sense of characters 
trying to almost deprogram themselves from mm. how they think about power. No, and, and power is really at the heart of all of these struggles, right? Because there are powers that people cannot control. There are powers that people deem is dangerous. There are powers that people don't want but have. Um, and these irrevocably shapes the kinds of lives that people are able to live. And I found that push and pull between someone who literally has world-ending powers, but in fact actually not having very much power at all, that tension was actually very tragic. Um, there's and a, being told that you have no power yes. or being repeatedly trained to believe you yes. have no I think power. To that, to that point, that, that exertion of power, in some ways, I mean, it happens physically. So it's actually, you know, you're physically reminded of that power. But most of the time for these three characters, um, they don't need any reminder. Mm. It's that power is enforced, it's self-enforced, right? It, it lives in their own minds and heads. And I think that, uh, you know, despite the fact that they have these amazing powers uh, that, that we talked about. So it's, it's fascinating that, you know, and, and it reflects the real world that we live in as well. We're talking today about The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison. It is this month's book club. Uh, we are joined by recommender of said book, Andrew Pereira. Uh, let us know if you've read The Fifth Season or perhaps even the whole trilogy. Are you familiar with N.K. Jemison's works? You can send us a WhatsApp 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. Beating fickle mindsets. BFM 89.9. The Business Station. Hello, everybody. You are still listening to Buy the Book with Lynn and Sharmila and our guest today, Andrew Pereira. So we're talking about the fifth season by N.K. Jemison. It is August's book club. And I wanted to talk about the writing because we have been getting real social political up in here, which is understandable. <laughs> um, considering the story that the novel is telling. But frankly, none of it would work if the writing weren't um, crisp, descriptive enough, uh, but not overly so, and really propulsive, right? The story pushes along at such a pace, um, especially after, I want to say, the first two chapters. And I think that's very tough to do considering the world building that we talked about, the, the different words. We haven't even mentioned orogeny, I think, is how we, is how we can say it. Uh, we haven't even mentioned, you know, the kinds of words that she utilizes in talking about the things that characters can do. I have a confession to make that it actually took me a little bit to get into the book. The first two chapters, actually, I think you said. It is Lynn. about two, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. it takes about that because, one, this is a, like, proper, solid fantasy book. So, you know, you're thrown right into the middle of a world where you have to just kind of understand what's going on. The index is at the back, not the front, <laughs> you know, so you need to like, you need to just roll with it, right? And I haven't read like a proper deep fantasy book before, so it took me a little bit. But once I got past the first, and, and I think Lynn, you also pointed out, it's also that the first two chapters are inherently dark and sad. And so that also takes a little bit of getting into. But once I got past that, um, the book doesn't get any cheerier, but you do get so drawn into the world. And, and I agree that her writing is sharp. It's very accessible without being superficial. Um, and I think she just has a way of conveying, you immediately imagine the worlds that she's talking about. You immediately imagine when she talks about a person, how they may look, how they may speak, you see the person in your mind. And, and I think that's, that's why it's so amazing to read this book. Oh, it's beautiful. And, 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 you know, there are certain tricks that she's using over here that, you know, I, I didn't pick up on until I was, you know, well towards the end of the book. So, for instance, 
one of the characters, uh, she writes in the second person voice. Yes. And the yeah. others, she writes as, you know, third person. Mm. And you're, you're asking yourself, why? Why is yes. that going And then when on? it's revealed why, you're like, oh, and I get like, it. Oh, yeah. wow. And there is a, um, I mean, the, the, there's a twist uh, in this book as well, which is, uh, which is quite spectacular mm-hmm. uh, uh, towards the end of it. And, um, you know, and then, you know, with, as, as with all good twists, when it finally dawns upon you, you realize, oh, there were signs all along that, you know, I should have picked up on. And, you know, that's just beautiful writing. That's, uh, you know, that took planning and that, you know, clues are peppered along the way. And, uh, you know, you, you, you enjoy reading it and you enjoy discovering, looking back at the things that you read before and thinking about how they led to this point uh, in the twist. That's what I was going to say. I think the best thing about the twist is that it makes you want to read the book again mm-hmm. because it, it kind of enriches the whole reading experience, both retroactively, retrospectively, and it also physically makes you want to like... Hey, what did I miss? I want to go back and look at this thing. Um, I I think that actually the vocabulary for me was an interesting one because it is somewhat recognizable, right? Like if if I tell you that someone is a geomest, you can take a very rough guess. Mm. Or a geneer. Or a geneer. Mm. You you can kind of guess as to what that might mean. A napper. um, These are all words that are English words. You know that they come from somewhere. But she throws them really casually. So I think that the reader is required to do a certain amount of work, right? You need to be immersed in the thing in such a way that you can contextualize what words mean. Um, It doesn't take you out of the book. But also you maybe just want to keep reading so you find out a little more later and it's very confident writing because it trusts the reader you're you're still with me you're still going to come along with me and you trust that I'll let this pay off later yeah you're not spoken down to no never that's it yeah Yeah. no that's true Um, and and I think she is also confident in her writing because this is the kind of fantasy where I may not understand what this particular term is I may not understand what this particular description exactly is but it doesn't mean I lose my way in the story so she's she doesn't she expects you to kind of work a little bit but she also gives you so much that it's fine if you didn't understand this bit it's okay it'll become clear as you go along and and I enjoyed that I also loved how um like most great fantasy writers, she has this impression of this huge world that exists beyond the story you're reading, right? Because not just the three perspectives, there are also all these other characters who each have their own, what seems like huge stories behind them. And then there are excerpts from their what I want what I want to call sacred texts, their stone lore, their excerpts, and then you kind of want to read all of them. Uh, there's a whole sort of all the different civilizations that came before. Um, and then there's this scene towards the last third of the book, which is a sort of a battle that I could straight up imagine being a movie. Um, just reading it felt so exciting. You know, speaking of the movie point, I think, I mean, this is ripe for movie adaptation, I mm, believe. Yes. I think a movie is probably going to be made out of this. And, you know, to your point about the richness of the characters, I think if this were to be adapted into a movie and it were a successful one, I think a whole bunch of the characters could have their own little movies and Absolutely. TV series because yeah. they're so rich, right? And you know, I, I just think about some of the characters in here. You know, there's there's a there's a character called Alabaster. There's a character called um, uh, Shafa. Mm. Um, I could read a whole book just about yes. those side characters. Shafa and is fascinating. Super fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and yet, neither of those are inherently likable. And I think that that's very cool too, because exactly. you you don't necessarily want to. 
I know I bang on about the harshness of the world, but I, I do so because I think that that results in severe damage to the characters that then informs the way they approach their lives. So none of them really are skipping through fields of daffodils. I don't think there are daffodils in the stillness, <laughs> like even if they wanted to find that field. Um, so it's it's a very harsh world. The characters are harsh. They're harsh to one another. Um, they're forced to make difficult decisions. And you see that play out throughout. And in fact, I will say that one of our point of view um, perspectives, more or less commits severe violence very early on. Mm. And I think that lets you know straight away, this is who these characters are. You need to know that if you're going to read the rest of the book. The book has a household pet that evolves to eating human meat. That's the level of harshness that we're dealing with here. Because of climate change. Because of climate change, <laughs> yes. So, um, and, and I will say that as somebody who at different points haven't or rather needed the right headspace to get into reading books that were inherently dark or sad, I don't think this is that kind of book. Um, no, no. Yeah, that's not what I meant. the story is difficult, I think it, it makes you, it might sound cliche, but really the idea of resilience, the idea of, you called, you said they're all very human, right? Mm. The idea of what it means to be human, to, to connect with one another, even through really difficult circumstances. I came away from this book feeling sort of inspired by how much of that happens, even against this very harsh story. I think it, it's, you know, the, this fact that humans, we are often shaped by these crucible moments in mm. our lives, these moments of intense pressure and stress. And, um, you know, and you see that with these characters happening pretty much on a, you know, every every 10 pages you turn, <laughs> you find a crucible moment. Yeah. And, um, you know, but it's, it's interesting to see, uh, uh, you know, how they react to it and how they, um, you know, they continue to survive uh, uh, and, and choose to survive. I think that's the other point, right? That they don't just oh, I like that. keep with yeah. it. They actually choose to go on. And, uh, you know, it's it's very interesting and very human. And they choose to go on and keep pushing each other to go on, despite the fact that everybody acknowledges that it's hard. Mm. Mm, yes. Yeah, I think that that was the main thing. So, okay, Andrew, you and I are ahead of Sharmila, so we can we can <laughs> gloat a little bit. Uh, no, because I bring this up only to say that uh, this was a quick read, I think, for, mm. for all of us once we got going. Um, how did you find the second book? Without spoilers, how did you think it was? Ooh, it's interesting. I think it it's not I didn't breeze I've not did not breeze through the second book quite as quickly. Um I think the world building in the first book is super fascinating, very interesting and um you know the momentum I think is a bit quicker. By the time you reach the second book, you're familiar with the characters and I think the thing which drove me through the second book was less the world per se and more the characters and, and wanting this curiosity as to what, what happens to them and what their stories are going to be. Um, if anything, it became more human. I think so too, yeah. Um, I I mean, The Obelisk Gate is the second book, and I think that it's, it is a lot slower. It's also a bit more claustrophobic. Um, there's mm. there's less of the travel and kind of backstory that you and get. It's quite in literally this book. claustrophobic because yes. you're underground for most of it. Yes, oh. that's the thing. Oh. So that's just worth saying. Um, and also, you see the characters evolve in a way that made me so eager to read the third and kind of finish it. So Look at you showing off, you know, you know, no, Sharmila, it's for the listeners. This is not about being mean to you on air. <laughs> um, Andrew, thank you so much for. coming. 
coming in and talking about this book. It was a pleasure. Uh, that was Andrew Pereira, CEO of General Assembly. We have been talking on this month's book club about The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison, which is the first book in the Broken Earth trilogy. Let us know, uh, have you read it? Do you plan to? Have you read any N.K. Jemison? She has other books. Uh, you can WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, and of course you can write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. brings us to footnotes. Uh, and so from talking about a book that deals so heavily in climate change, but in a fictional setting, uh, we are now shifting gears to talk about how it's affecting a, a book festival, a very large book festival, in fact, the Edinburgh International Book Fest. And this is happening because... An open letter has been sent to the organisers of the festival. It's signed by 50 authors, including names as big as Zadie Smith, Ali Smith, Catherine Rundell. And they have essentially called on the festival to drop any sponsor that invests in fossil fuels. And this, I think, is a pretty clear... Um, this, I think, is pretty clearly directed at the lead sponsor of the festival, which is investment firm Bailey Gifford, which, um, according to... The Ferret, which is a media outlet. Uh, the company has up to £5 billion invested in corporations that profit from fossil fuels. This is interesting, right? I think it's also worth saying that this comes after climate activist Greta Thunberg actually um, cancelled her appearance at the festival. Um, Obviously, from her, it's an expected move. Um, I found this quite a complicated issue, not because I don't agree with the stand that the authors are taking, but perhaps because I feel like in the end, what suffers is arts funding in general. And I understand that those concerns can coexist. But as in the case of this issue, sometimes they do leave us feeling rather bleak, I think, because it's worth noting, right, that Bailey Gifford isn't directly a company involved in what people might consider climate um, uh, or, or environmentally damaging activities, but they are an investment firm. And so they are holding a fair amount of companies that may be viewed as doing that. I, yeah, this is actually sad because in the end, I feel like a lot of festivals and arts festivals, literature festivals rely on sponsorship. Um, and until we get to the point where we have things like transparent sustainability reports and um, perhaps holding people accountable for greenwashing, I don't want to see events like the Edinburgh Festival get cancelled because they don't get funding. I have two questions, actually. I think for the second one, which we'll return to, is whether as attendees we would all eschew festivals like this because of their sponsors, whether that is the point that we're at where we look at sponsorship and say, you know what, I, I'm actually not interested. And I think that in a setting like Malaysia, in which one of our largest companies is Petronas, you know, then, then it becomes actually a little bit more of a localized, complicated question. But I will say, to go back to my first point, which I haven't yet made, um, that what interests me about this is that like you're saying, from the festival's point of view, you are stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? Because on the one hand, not that many people are lining up 
to yeah. sponsor arts and culture festivals. Not that many people are lining up to buy tickets either, to yes. be honest. So so that's one thing. Um, on the other hand, how many of your large, big name authors can you afford to lose before your festival ceases to really have that much meaning for attendees, right? Because that's a whole other thing as well. So fine, you take an ethical stance and then you lose your sponsorship or you take what these authors are deeming a less than ethical position and then they don't come and then people don't want to come and then what next? So I, I think that it's very tough and unless we, which brings me back to my question earlier, whether you would in fact boycott a festival on this basis because if you would, then the other question is whether you would start up a um, a Kickstarter or a Patreon or whatever, and then actually contribute money directly to ensure that these festivals can run. Because if not, I'm not sure what happens. So festival director uh, Nick Bali has actually come out to say he acknowledges these concerns, he takes them seriously, but he also said that the organization would not have funding to operate without private sponsors. And I think that is quite a key point that he's trying to make, um, especially when, again, as I say, we live in a landscape where um, many, many large corporations have these sorts of sins in their portfolio, right? So how do we decide who whose money is worthy of being used. Um, I'm not saying I have the answers because once again, I actually do agree that if you're in a position to take a stand for a cause that you be, you believe in, you have all the right to do it. But then we go back to the question that you brought up. If big name authors who can afford to take risks like these boycott festivals, what happens to your debut writer, your newbie who wants to go to this festival and, and, and connect with people and connect with audiences. Is there an incentive for these festivals to be held anymore? Um, are we back to now talking about perhaps there needs to be better government sponsorship so that these sorts of events don't need to rely on corporate sponsors? But that's a question that we haven't been able to answer anyway. No, and we're not anywhere close to it. So you mentioned that the uh, that the festival directors have weighed in. The representatives from Bailey Gifford have also essentially said the company is, in their words, not a significant fossil fuel investor, talking about the different things that they invest in, long-term growth, um, Companies that tend to be using technology to provide society with progressive products, services, healthcare, and materials. Yes, this apparently is, a Danish wind farm amongst them. So this is what mm. they say, right? Um, and I think that actually at this point, I know I said Petronas earlier, and you can name any other sort of um, company that is involved in, for example, oil and gas. It's worth pointing out that Bailey Gifford is an investment firm, and I think that when we talk about things like transparency and looking into what people do and assessing benefits or damage, it does become more complicated when you are talking about something like an investment firm. I, I'm not saying that that means that you shouldn't do it, merely that it becomes a little bit harder uh, to... A little bit harder, I think, to suss out exactly what's happening. The uh, chain of responsibility, really, or how far do you want to take the quote-unquote you have blood on your hands argument? Um, and you have fossil fuels fossil on your fuel hands. Fossil fuels on your hands, yes, oil <laughs> on your hands. Um, it, it's, it's a tough one because, again, I think we might find that there are very few of these big-name sponsors who are completely without blame. So actually, Sharmila, to put it simply, would does it bother you? Would it bother you if you were in a position to go to the Edinburgh Festival? Would it bother you that one of its sponsors 
has invented has invested five billion pounds in fossil fuels. Um, it, I think it would bother me more if it was directly a company that had a track record of harming the environment or planet. Perhaps something like an investment firm. I'm willing to be a little bit more circumspect. Um, I also think that it's absolutely important whether they use that clout to prevent the sort of criticism from being discussed. One of the things the director actually said is, let's have these open conversations in the festival, um, which I think is one way to maybe get around it, to hold people accountable while also using their money, which mm. I'm all for, because if the money is there for a good cause, use it, but it shouldn't come with strings. Yeah, so I think uh, where my discomfort lies is in the idea of culture or culture washing or greenwashing in which you have a company that for the most part doesn't, you know, it's investing, which means that it's not necessarily investing in the arts, you know. Um, I'm not sure that capitalism and artistic ventures always mix all that well. But I, I think that my discomfort comes from the idea that you can dump what is to the festival a lot of money, but to the company isn't a lot. Yeah. Um, and then get sort of the cultural cachet that comes with that. And, you know, without necessarily having to answer, to your point, these sorts of questions. It makes me sad, though, to think about what the alternative is, because if we say, let the people who want these festivals pay for them, let's do, let's say, a, a Patreon model, crowdfunding model, or maybe just sell tickets, I actually feel fairly convinced that these sorts of events will not last. Um, there aren't enough people, no, I think. And I also think that arts and culture and literature should be as widely available as possible. And that's why we need, uh, for lack of a better word, this sort of patronage sponsorship system. Um, it's just whether we currently have the ability to dictate where that money can come from. So we've been talking today on Footnotes about the Edinburgh Festival, which of which there was a threatened boycott, right? Um, so it's actually kicked off already, but there were there was an open letter with 50 authors signing it saying that they protested the main sponsor's mm. involvement in fossil fuels, which opens up an interesting question about accountability and essentially how we feel about these sorts of things. Let us know. Um, which side of the argument or divide do you land on? You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, and write to us at bythebook at bfm.my. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.